So, thank you for joining again, Democratizing Music. Today we are joined by musician author Craig Anderton. He's an internationally recognized authority on music technology. He's played on, produced, or mastered over 20 major label recordings and hundreds of tracks. He's authored 45 books? Is that a typo? Oh man, that must be a typo or he's just incredible. 45 books on musical instruments written over a thousand articles, lectured on technology and the arts, uh, and done so in 10 countries, 38 US states, and in many uh, three languages. Wow. Um, he's done sound design and consulting work for many uh, music companies out there and the current president of the MIDI Manufacturers Association. Uh, you can visit his free educational website, craiganderton.org, uh, the craiganderton.com digital storefront, and Craig Anderton Sound uh, Studio and Stage Forum at musicplayer.com, and stream his music and videos at youtube.com slash thecraiganderton. So, Craig, thank you for joining us. That's an amazing background. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. How about you? I am doing wonderfully because <laughs> I'm going to get to talk to like one of my heroes. So this is like the best thing ever. Um, so thanks again for being willing to join. Oh, my pleasure. You know, as I read through that bio and I think through the other things I've seen you post and your other interviews, it occurs to me that like there were a few things that st stood out to me about your history that weren't included there. Like for, for instance, like, didn't you invent like one of the first synthesizers and play them play it on stage for like one of the first people? Yeah, actually, um, the, the, I w it wasn't one of the first synthesizers. I did do the first programmable drum machine. That was in 1970, um, wow. but it was programmable with switches. We didn't have things like EEPROMs back then. Okay. <laughs> it was called the Matrix Drums because it had a matrix of switches, and they let through clock pulses at different rates to trigger drums. And uh, used them in a group called Anomaly, which was uh, an all-electronic music group at the time in the early 70s. Um, but before then, I had made my own synthesizer. Of course, Moog came out with his at the uh, or introduced it at AES in 1965. And I got I sort of cut my teeth on a Moog Series Three when I was able to uh, sneak into a university uh, when no one was looking and, and play <laughs> with it because I wasn't going to the school. Mm. And, um, and of course, it was like you know ten thousand dollars in 19. $67 or something. So it was out of my range. So I thought, well, I'll build something. So I actually built my own synthesizer, built a homemade synthesizer. I called it the modulator, played it on stage in, I guess it was 67, yeah, 60, wow. or 68. And then I built a more advanced version in uh, 1969, which was polyphonic. You could play two notes at a time. Uh, <laughs> used Radio Shack push buttons. And uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it was the I interviewed Steve Winwood a while ago. He used to come with traffic and watch us play in, in New York. Mm -hmm. And I said, was I the first synthesizer player you ever saw on stage live? He said, yeah, I think you were. So, I mean, it, it goes back there. So, How did how'd the show go? Like, uh, was it, did you have to work through any rough patches or did you establish yourself on, you know, comfortable with the in instrument that it went off without a hitch? Oh, it, it was usually it was usually not a problem. Um, the only time it was a real problem was we played on the steps of the art museum of in Philadelphia, and there were like ten thousand people, oh and gosh. they had generators generating electricity. Well, remember these were voltage controlled devices. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I had a magic slow rolling LFO going the whole time, which was kind of interesting. So I, I ended up playing a lot more guitar in places instead of the synthesizers. But aside from that, I mean, you know, uh, 
I you mean, mean because the generator wasn't supplying a perfectly constant, steady stream of volts. It was kind of varying slightly and yeah, it out. was it was kind of doing whatever it wanted to do. I think it maybe yeah. it wanted a maybe it wanted a position in the band or something, but um, <laughs> it was yeah that, that was that was a problem. But you know the funny thing about synthesizer back then, one of the one of the biggest lessons I learned early in life uh, is we did a concert. And at that time, we did it in Philadelphia, and at that time they had an evening and a morning newspaper. And two reviews came out about the concert, and one was unrelentingly negative. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> it just tore up and down. And then the other one was like overwhelmingly positive. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But what really was interesting was that they picked up on the same thing. So like the positive one said, and then the guitar player sat down at this box and made these like really crazy sounds. It was great. And the negative review was like, and then the guitar player sat down and just decided <laughs> to make noise for five minutes, you know? And that taught me a really valuable lesson because, you know, like, like that Rick Nelson song, you can't please everyone, so you gotta please yourself, yeah. you know? And uh, it was good to learn it that early on because from that point on, whether I got good reviews or bad reviews or whatever, didn't really matter that much. Yeah, no, I, I experienced the same thing. I, I've uh, I made the mistake one time of uh, submitting a song of mine to Reverb Nation's like crowd review process. Have you ever heard of that? Where no. like basically twenty random users or fifty, however many you pay for, uh, users on Reverb Nation will listen to your song and just like give you a critique, is what they say. But really, they just lay into you. And I noticed, <laughs> I noticed basically the same thing. Like this guy has some of the worst lyrics I've ever heard in my life. Well, the next person would be like, I love these lyrics. They speak to me so much. And it's like, okay, well, clearly I'm not going to please everyone. I might as well just do what yeah, makes me happy, as you said. Well, the music I'm doing now, I mean, it's not designed for a, a wide audience, but the people who like it really like it. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's kind of all I really care about. What was the, I, I think you've also made your own like guitar foot pedals and like effects pedals and stuff. Is, is that oh true? yeah. <laughs> what what was the timing relative to making your own synth? Was, was the foot pedal first or the synth? <laughs> Which oh, came the, first, the, the synth or the foot? <laughs> no, the, the pedals were first. Um, I was really into electronics as, as a teenager and mm -hmm. uh, I went around on trash day when people put their old TVs out mm -hmm. and I'd strip them for parts. And that's what I would use to make various things. And the, I made a bunch of stuff. I think the first article I ever that ever was ever published, well, no, actually it was the second one, was in 1967 in Popular Electronics. It was how to do a fuzz tone. Then after that came a compressor. And the, um, you know, I mean, it was like, it was pretty unsophisticated stuff. It was, you know, I did one thing I called the Little Magic Wonder Box. It was just a coil to ground and, and actually turned out to be very much like the baritone circuit in a 335 in the sense of... Huh shunting certain frequencies to ground. So I used that. I created my own distortion boxes. Um, but part of the reason uh, part of the reason for making my own stuff was I didn't have the money to buy it. But the other reason is that I was never happy with the sounds I was getting from other stuff. And that's why I came up with the mm. Quadrifuzz, with that multiband distortion in the mid-'80s, because I just could not find the distortion sound that I liked. And I decided that the reason why is there was too much intermodulation distortion in the signal. And it was like messing things up. And I wanted something more focused. And the uh, the quadrifuzz was you know bingo that was it mm -hmm. that, that that took care of it because now um, each frequency band only had to do a you know or only the distortion was spread over four frequency bands so you could hit like a really uh, you know hit a low string for a power chord and play up on the high strings and they wouldn't influence each other. Mm -hmm. That's uh, well I've got so many follow up questions just off of that alone. 
Uh, I also was an electronics nerd, especially in, in, in high school. I took electronics. Uh, I learned how to wire basic di uh, like uh, uh, circuits together, uh, even going so far as to make like a, a circuit board at one point. And that's how I learned to like build computers and stuff like that. But uh, from, from parts, obviously not from uh, <laughs> not from circuit uh, circuits themselves. But at any rate, I guess I what the first thing I wanted to ask is, uh, I remember my electronics teacher in high school telling me that, uh, hey, when you when you work on a TV, a tube TV, you got to make sure to discharge that tube. Otherwise, you get a nice, nasty shock. Uh, did you have to learn that lesson the hard way? I'm wondering. Not with the TV, but with an ICO oscilloscope. Yeah, uh, it, uh, it, it held its charge. But I mean, I was self-taught in electronics pretty much uh, because back in those days, okay, I'd I'd written articles so I could go to like Texas Instruments and say, hey, I write articles and send them a copy and say, so can you send me a couple samples of this particular chip or National Semiconductor, could you send me a sample? So they send me samples and they had data, data sheets and data books. And a lot of the circuits um, that I came up with for electronic projects for musicians and that I've done over the years came about from looking at a part and going, hmm, what if? Hmm. Like the ring modulator in electronic projects for musicians is actually a phase-locked loop chip. And I did a vocoder with telecommunications chips and things like that. So um, you really have to try to approach this stuff with a fresh outlook or using or using red LEDs as distortion elements. That's my, my favorite distortion element for a bunch of reasons. And I was talking once with Tom Schultz, you know, the, the guitarist from Boston. He's another fan of red LEDs. We're like the red LED as distortion elements fan club, you know. Do you uh, explain what you mean by red LEDs? For like, is that the you're using literally a red light emitting diode to be the thing that determines how the signal is distorted? Yeah, most people, you know, use a germanium diode or a silicon mm -hmm. diode. Yeah. Um, germaniums clip at a little bit lower level, so they give a little a little more distortion. Mm -hmm. LEDs are diodes too. It's like LEDs mm -hmm. are people too. Light you know? emitting diodes. Oh. Yes, light emitting diodes, but the red ones have a particularly wonderful characteristic. Their breakdown voltage, and I don't want to get too nerdy here, but suffice no, it to no, say no. that- Craig, nerd, full nerd, go for okay. it. Okay, well, the breakdown voltage on a red LED is about 2.2 volts, something like that, which is just enough to shave the peaks off, mm. of, off of a guitar. So I used it for transient control, which is a whole other thing, um, which makes a guitar work so much better with anything digital because it's, you get a higher average level going into the digital device. Mm -hmm. The clipping is uh, inaudible because it's for such a short period of time. There's no pumping. There's no breathing. It's a mechanical limiter, basically. Mm. Uh, and the other thing is that the red LED has a phenomenon called junction capacitance. And so um, when it first starts distorting, there's a certain amount of high-frequency roll-off. So it's kind of like a tube in a way. Hmm. And then if you overload the thing, and if you smash it, then you get these really great distortion characteristics. Uh, and I mean, there's other good distortion elements too that people overlook, like the, the tube sound fuzz, which yeah. sort of has its own cult following. I think Red Llama did a version. Um, that, used, uh, that, that used CMOS gates biased linearly. So I used digital parts designed really? for switching. But the thing, I looked at it and it's like, hmm, it's got, it's got field effect transistors in here and they behave more like tubes. So what would happen if I biased this linearly? Mm -hmm. And I found out, well, it makes more noise, but um, the, the distortion characteristics are just freaking gorgeous. So between that and red LEDs, I found my, my holy grail distortion element. I didn't feel I needed to pursue silicon or germanium diodes or anything like that. That's cool. I, I think I remember uh, from my history that, uh, that 
LEDs like basically last forever as long as you don't uh, set, uh, forget to put a resistor before sending them some signal. Uh, so like, is that an advantage they have over over the silicone and germaniums? Like, are those more prone to wear out uh, over time versus the red LEDs? Just no, curious. red LEDs lose their brilliance over like you know a hundred years or something like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> you know, so it's not really a problem. But yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's a you know, it's a solid state device as long as you don't push too much current through it. It's it's going to be happy. Um, of course, it's exciting when you do push too much current through them, but that's that's a whole other topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you? Uh, what, what you said the first uh, pedal you built was a, a distortion. Was that right? No, it was like a filter. A filter. It was, okay. It was basically a mid-range peaking filter. Uh, not that I intended to do that, but um, you know, I'm a, I'm not a how do I guy. I'm a what if guy. Okay. You know? Like so is a big that difference. how you did it? Like yeah, you like what would happen if I tried to send my guitar signal through this? And yeah, I mean, exactly. Because if you say how do I, then all you can do is recreate something that happened before. Exactly. But if you say what if, what happens if I take this output transformer from a TV and connect it to ground? Be, oh, okay, cool. You know. And of course, for every one of those that that does something cool, there's something that's a total abject failure. But that's okay. Yeah. Sorry, I was getting a call there for a second from. Uh, that actually might not be a terrible transition to a related topic. Uh, one of your Friday tip of the weeks recently was was about uh, using a touchscreen as a control surface on Studio One. This is kind of a hard right turn, but it, it is kind of natural. <laughs> um, so I I actually had always basically, ever since I was a kid, dreamed about literally like the what I thought was like the Star Trek of computers, right? The, the top of my desk would actually be a giant touchscreen computer. And after I read your article, I figured out that, well, I'm pretty sure that maybe the technology has gotten there so that if I was clever enough, I could get a giant touchscreen. And if I built like a custom mounting device to make it into a desk, uh, it ought to work. Uh, so I actually went out and bought a planar touchscreen, uh, like a 58 inch touchscreen and um, set it up and, and got it working very, very quickly with, uh, with Windows uh, to control Studio One. I wanted to know, like, uh, I'm not sure that you've done an interview for maybe at least a year. So, like, have your feelings changed about control surfaces versus touchscreens? Like, are, are you still more on the side of, of control surfaces or, like, physical mixing type of things like the Studio Live series? Well, I'm an, I'm an and kind of guy. I like it. You know, it's like um, the main advantage to me with a touchscreen is I can use the mouse with my left hand and do things with my right hand on the screen. So I can like zoom, scroll, find, change, um, sweep, that kind of stuff with the right hand. And then with the left hand, um, I can be like doing the fine, the more detailed stuff. Mm. So it, it makes it makes everything work faster. That's, in, terms yeah. of, in terms of mixing itself, for that, um, I generally prefer, I, I, have a, I have fader port for that. I do too. That's exactly and, my setup. Yeah, and the and the reason why is because I can be more precise with that in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, when you find uh, effects that have multi-point touch, uh, not not all that many do, but some do. Like for example, the Empire amps. Uh, actually, I think all the Studio One effects are multi-touch. Yes, they are. So you can do uh, you can adjust multiple parameters at the same time instead of having a mouse and, and being able you know okay now I'm going to adjust the envelope attack and now I'm going to adjust the velocity response and now I'm going to go back to the attack because I wasn't quite right now I'm going to go back to the velocity you know you can do those at the same time so if you have a mouse 
a keyboard in your lap, a touchscreen laid out in front of you, kind of flattish like a mixer, and a control surface off to the side, you've really got pretty much everything you need, and you can choose whatever tool is appropriate for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that kept me from getting the control surface these days is just the, the kind of initial cost of it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So, like, it was kind of an either-or decision for me at this point in my studio uh, for either a touchscreen or a control surface. And I, I went touchscreen, and unfortunately, the backlight died, like, oh, 18 no. hours into me using it. And I'm, I'm having to like work. That's what the call was that I just got was the, uh, the person that had resold it to me from the manufacturer uh, with a one year warranty was trying to call me back. So definitely need to follow up on that later. But yeah, uh, to well, that don't, end. Don't forget do you, you can hold down the, sh the shift key when you want to get more precise uh, motion. Oh yeah, that, definitely, definitely. You know, I found that this, uh, there's a Windows app called um, Gesturely or something like that basically it lets you define your own custom gestures, mm. uh, like, you know, motions with your hand. And so like, for instance, if I go, I'm not sure if you can see my video, but if I go like that on a, on a window, it minimizes it. And right. like, um, so yeah, you can basically make your workflow more intuitive. You don't have to learn what windows expected uh, gestures are. You can just say, when I do this, you do that. I mean, the biggest problem that I see is that it takes a while to get to get used to the concept. People are so used to using a mouse and a keyboard that mm -hmm. you know, even just learning all the you know the key switch combinations and the and the you know the button combinations on a control surface is like, uh, you know, I don't want to have to learn what this button does when I hold shift. I'm just going to grab the mouse. Yeah. You know, you have to work on it becomes until it becomes second nature. And with the touch screen, you got to find out what it does well and what it doesn't do well. Because yep. there's some things where the touch screen is fabulous, and there's some things where it just, just does not work. I mean, right now, I'm touching effects, and there we go, and it opens up, and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also faced a, a challenge where uh, Windows was uh, acting like I was uh, touching or clicking on my primary monitor because my touch screen was my secondary, surface, my secondary mm. monitor. Uh, and I had to like do a calibration to say, no, my primary monitor doesn't get any touch uh, interactions, only the second right. one does. But yeah, once I did that, it was, it was pretty easy to work with. Even things like FabFilter, uh, a third-party plugin manufacturer, has right. has great touch interactions with their plugins. But yeah, as long as, you're right though. I'm sure there are probably some old Waves plugins that would uh, not not like to be touched at all. Um, okay. Uh, I. You know, uh, kind of related to the, we were talking earlier before the podcast started about uh, Helix and modeling versus uh, like uh, tube amps and things like that. Kind of tangential to that and um, as a way to transition between the like uh, custom manufacturing, I guess I'll call it, manu uh, uh, equipment design background that you have and the modeling discussion. Uh, I'd like to maybe talk about, you know, there's this legendary guitar tone that Queen's Brian Mace has from his uh, his guitar on a lot of those famous Queen songs. And, you know, some people say that it's uh, mostly his, his custom-built guitar. I think I had read something that he had maybe even custom-built an amp at some point and maybe used that on a few recordings. I'm not sure if you know the history on that, but, I mean, how much do you think, like, it would take you how long do you think it would take you to like find find that tone using stock plugins i know that's not your game because you're more of a what if i instead of a how do i but do mm -hmm. you ever play the how do i game i guess not really because he's already doing it 
Mm. You know, okay. it's like there's already there's already Brian May. We don't need another one. And I mean, and the other thing is that I think if if uh, Brian May was playing on a silver tone guitar through a Radio Shack amp, he would still sound like Brian May. I totally agree. You know, Just so I mean, a lot style. of it's. I mean, it's stylistically. I mean, I did an album back in the '80s called Forward Motion that did pretty well. And it was before digital audio was available, so all the guitar parts were MIDI guitar and the keyboard parts were keyboards. And people wanted to know which was which, and I said, well, if it sounds like it was done with a guitar, it's probably a keyboard. And if it sounds like it was done with a keyboard, it was probably the guitar. Because even when I play, when I play keyboards, you know, the way I move the pitch bend wheel and, and, and you know, the way I use the foot pedal and the kind of voicings I use are very sort of guitar-like. It always sounds like me no matter what I do, even on harmonica. You know, mm. It's like there's nothing I can do about that. So in terms of modeling other sounds, I mean, that that's great. I mean, if you want to sound like Brian May, that's cool. But um, I want, to me, the value of modeling is to be able to make sounds that don't exist in the real world or mm -hmm. push the envelope or would be impractical to, yeah. to do. You know, I mean, yeah, I can I can dial up something that sounds pretty much like a Fender Twin or you know, Marshall or whatever, but, but, but why? You know, I have tube amps. I right. have tube preamps. Um, why would I spend my time trying to reproduce those? Okay, yeah, and that's a, a great a great point and actually a good transition to what I was going to ask. Um, so, like, for instance, here's an example of, of why I might do that in my scenario, at least. Like, there was this psych delay plugin that was part of Guitar Rig way back right. in the day. Right, that I loved. I love, love, love that plugin. I don't think that there's a hardware plug, uh, version of, of a psych delay that I'm aware of out there. One that does the delay like it did, you know, that's just a basic digital delay, but then does the modulation part just on the delay with the with the like feedback bit that they had with that. Right, right. And, and so I, like, that's the kind of thing that I wish that I, I had the knowledge base now to Either do I'm pretty sure I could do it even with like an FX chain and splitter if I was if I understood how they had accomplished the psych delay the part I love about psych delay you know that modulation bit so how would you like if you ever had to approach something like that or how would you approach that if you did well they're doing real time reversal stuff mm, okay you know, so um, well it's not real time I mean you have to play it first and then it reverses and there are things like that. I mean, there are other things that do that. I think even electroharmonics has effects that do that in hardware. Um, but again, it's something you can just as easily uh, take your guitar track, turn it into a reverse, reverse guitar track, and, and apply whatever modulation and things you want to do then. Mm -hmm. It becomes more like a component sort of assembly thing at that point. But I mean, I love the psych delay too. I, I actually wrote the... Uh, original manual for guitar rigs. So really, <laughs> oh my gosh. I was really familiar with it. And, Talking to the right guy. <laughs> and, yeah, I love that thing. And I still do. And I don't know if you've played with Guitar Rig 6, but it's 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 pretty oh, cool. It's out. I didn't know Guitar Rig oh, 6. Oh yeah, it's out. Right. It's it's uh, it's got a lot of it's actually got a lot of neat things going on. It's got um you can collect modules into uh, well, very much like an effects chain in Studio 1 or or a rack in, in Ableton mm, Live, yeah. you know, with macro mm -hmm. controls and things like that. Uh, it's got some new amp technologies in there. It's got an interface lift. Uh, it's not. It's not so much skeuomorphic. It's more flat. But um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's definitely definitely cool. Uh, and of course, you can do splitters and they have crossovers and all those fun things that I like. But you know, that also gets to another point about about amp sims. People talk about amp sims like it's some monolithic block of gear. 
but the reality is is that they, you know they, they they handle different needs differently like if i was talking to someone who played you know groove oriented guitar or did edm type stuff and they wanted to know which amps him to get i'd say well get guitar rig or get get helix mm-hmm. you know but if they play in a, in a in a blues band and they want those authentic kind of swampy tones i'd say get amplitude you know interesting i I didn't expect that. I've actually not had any trouble getting almost any tone out of out of my Helix. It's just a matter of did they have a preset that was easy for me to get the tone quickly without trying too hard. But like, oh, maybe we can talk about this in a second because I actually use my Helix in a very strange way that uh, might be counterintuitive uh, to most other Helix users. Um, I think first though, I wanted to ask um, before we move too far, uh, beyond the manufacturing bit is like, ha, uh, what was the most uh, difficult kind of effects chain or pedal that you tried to build physically as opposed to uh, digitally, like in your DAW? Like the hardest in- one for you to, to figure out, like, um, oh, how, how do I how do I finish this idea? You know, I started with a what happens if I, and then maybe I got like a ooh, but what like maybe I could get this sort of sound. Like, what was the hardest thing to kind of get? finished off for you you mean in my hardware days or was yeah your hardware days hardware days um well with hardware it was really i i try to keep things as simple as possible i try to remove things whether it's Mm. in a musical arrangement or whether it's an effect chain so i had distortion and i had a wah pedal and i'm trying to think if i had anything else um and a couple of my boxes and that that was it and they but they're all about they were all about eq and distortion um i did I have a delay? I don't even remember if I had a delay. I mean, this was, was back in the in the 60s. We didn't really have bucket brigade devices. You could get tape echoes and things like that, but they were too unreliable for for live use in, when you were playing right. six nights a week for six weeks. Right. You know, and then of course you had the amp, and you, you automatically had reverb because you were playing in a live space, and uh, you know it was all about the playing. Really, I think probably one of the more interesting things I did was I took my 12 string. And I, at one point we, we were a three-piece, and I took the top, uh, I took, I, I undoubled the first two strings so I could mm-hmm. bend notes on the top yeah. two strings but play chords on, on, the, uh, on the other, you know, on the normal four strings that were octaves. Right. It had a great sound. It had a great sound. Um, you know, the other thing, in a more modern version of that, I had a duo together with uh, Brian Hardgroove, who's a bass player in Public Enemy, but he's also an excellent drummer fantastic yeah. drummer and so we had a band where i had a gibson les paul with hex outs and he had drums and what i did was i took the bottom two strings and put them through octave dividers took the middle four put them through a chorus and took the top two and put them through distortion and i play with my fingers i articulate with my fingers because i start off on classical guitar mm-hmm. and um i mean it sounded like a full band and then i i sang through a digitech harmony machine he sang through a harmony uh, harmony machine so we had four vocalists, bass, rhythm, guitar, and lead, and drums. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, uh, try try doing that without software and electronics and 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 distortion modules and things like that. That yeah, I mean, that sounds really really cool. Uh, that that Gibson guitar that's cool. It uh, has the separate outputs for each string, right? Yeah, the HD six X. It was it's it was a ill fated guitar because I was the only person who really. <laughs> <laughs> and it had an Ethernet out. I mean, that's how it, that's how it did it. But the coolest thing about that th- about that kind of kind of setup with the band mm-hmm. was you could do anything because you didn't have to worry about somebody following you. 
you know, Brian was playing drums, and I, I didn't have to worry about the bass player or the keyboard player or the other vocalists or anything. We we could just, you know, if we wanted to take a couple extra measures, you know, we could do it. It was it was a really very free flowing type of setup. That's yeah, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of Ethernet outs on guitars, yeah, you see the uh, the JTV over there. In oh the yeah, background? there you go. Yeah, so that's got the Line Six output to my Helix, which has the uh, I also have the amp uh, cab. From them with the mm -hmm. flat output uh, which is how I basically I feel like those things put together are basically why I don't have trouble dialing in any, any tone that I'm, I'm looking for you know the, yeah. the, I don't know about you but like I, I do enjoy like unwinding at the end of my work day or or uh, I guess your work day is music but at the end of my work day at, at a bank uh, programming computers I, I like to unwind by just like putting on one of my favorite records and jamming along to it so it's nice to be able to quickly dial in that tone with the helix and kind of fit into that song. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever you, whatever you want to do. I mean, whatever gives you joy is what it's all about. Oh, for sure. Um, so I think we've kind of talked to, I, I've heard you talk about loopers a lot. We've kind of almost zeroed in on that once or twice, but I'm actually a, a major proponent of guitar looper pedals. I was curious to know if you had ever tried one of those or, or used those. Um, I'm not really that much into it, although I saw Johnny A play and it blew my mind. That guy's mm. incredible. Um, but that doesn't interest me so much because for my live performance stuff, I use Ableton Live. <laughs> so, mm. I mean, that's loops up the wazoo. I, I do have a solo act that's based around Ableton Live, also with a guitar input and mic input going into it. But that's all about control surface, uh, fa or, or what I call fader slamming, and having a bunch of loops in there. Mm. And um, so that's that's how I get my, my loop jollies off. There was one time uh, I was in Austin, and this was right after Sid Barrett had died. And uh, I deconstructed Interstellar Overdrive into loops and did an improvisation on that with Ableton Live, and that was awesome. that was really fun. That was really so. I haven't really felt the need to do guitar looping, but again, uh, Johnny A. I mean, he's. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with with what he does, but um, it's definitely worth going on YouTube and and checking it out because his live looping act is astonishing. He did a version of Strawberry Fields Forever where he did all the stuff. He has two loopers. He has them synced together, and he does songs i mean he does actual songs based on loops he's not just uh you know i'll lay down the chords and i'll lay down a lead then i'll do this and do that he switches back and forth between them and has yeah. a sections and b sections and That's it's the most do, e it's the most evolved looping i've seen oh, so cool. when i look at that it's like well why should i even bother <laughs> you know? yeah okay yeah i uh i will check out johnny a uh, is it spelled just like i think it is yeah johnny johnny a with a period at the end cool yeah i will look them up Cause yeah, that's kind of the way I, I use the looper. Like I hate it when loopers go up there and they're like, okay, the crowd has to wait while I lay down all the, the like building blocks of my song. Basically I walk up and I'm, I'm playing my song. And if you're not paying close attention, you just might be like, wait, hang on. Are there three guitarists playing now? Because like I've seamlessly recorded the loop as I went along and right. built the song to fit the looper. You know, I, like I just wrote an album that was designed to be played at like open mics and things like that uh, with that looper in mind. So well, you know, one thing about super interesting. One thing about Johnny A to keep in mind is he's known for being like a, 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 a tubes purist, tubes and telly kind of guy. Not, mm -hmm. I mean, not a telly so much more. I think he's more of a Gibson dude, but um, his tone is superb. 
Uh, he does a version of Walk Away Renee, just solo, that is unbelievable. So when I saw him going full tilt into the 21st century with the looping, it was like, this is just so cool. Because he really mastered it. He mastered it as well as he'd mastered just getting a fabulous guitar tone. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait to check it out. Um, what about uh, since you're kind of in the synth world, but I know you were a guitar player and are a guitar player. Like, have you ever done anything like um, uh, there's a jazz guitarist, Michael Powers, that plays a uh, the hollow Yamaha electric guitar so that it has no resonance to, to the notes, and no harmonic resonance or little harmonic resonance, I should say. And then he drives that into like a, a, ba a boss uh, instrument simulator to like make flute like sounds and, and other kinds of sounds. Have you ever done anything like that or experimented with those uh, sorts of pedals? Uh, well, I can play keyboards, so it's. Why would you do it? Yeah, okay. it's like it's like gotcha. I, I can I can get the sound faster and, and better. And the other thing is, but I do apply guitar thinking to keyboards sometimes. There's um, okay. there's a solo I do on on one of the songs that's on YouTube that everybody is convinced is guitar. Um, I mean, it mm. sounds like a whammy bar and chords and distortion, all that stuff. It has feedback coming in. I've, I have these great feedback patches where I bring in a harmonic, you know, an octave and a fifth above right. or a couple octaves above. And so I, I th there's a sort of a correlation between the two. I, I mean, I have done MIDI guitar stuff and, um, I, you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've done, I've done a bunch of those things, but nine times out of 10, I'm going to get better results by using the keyboard. Hmm. Now, that might change. Um, you know, it's like MIDI guitar stuff is getting better, but the other problem is that um, every MIDI guitar I've ever seen or played is designed to be played by someone who uses a thin flat pick. Mm. And I don't use a thin flat pick. I use a thumb pick, and I use my yeah. fingers, and they don't like that. Yeah. And there's a lot of false triggering. Now, the other thing I've done is sometimes is, is I have recorded things, uh, put them into Melodyne or into Jam Origin, and spent hours cleaning it up and realized if I had just played on the keyboard, it would have been done by now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing is that what makes a guitar truly expressive, you know, the bending, the different ways you hold the strings, those kinds of things, guitar synths can't do that. So if you're just closing switches anyway, you might mm -hmm. as well close switches on a keyboard. And even if you're not a particularly good keyboard player, you can always slow the tempo way down. We have MIDI, you can fix things, you know, it's, it's yeah. uh, so... And the other thing, of course, is, is you get very different voicings on a keyboard compared to a guitar. You get those right. narrow, narrower voicings. You play a cowboy chord G on a, on a guitar. It'd be pretty difficult to even pull that off on a, on a keyboard, right? But, Unless but you, you got have an extra hand. But you beautiful, close, parallel lines on a keyboard that are that'd exactly. be very difficult to do on a guitar. Yep. You know, and the, and the other thing is like, um, I mean, I was, a, I was a big Wes Montgomery fan on guitar. I love that octave sound. And, you know, you... You can only take it so far on a guitar before you run out of frets or, you know, the ability to, to do octaves easily. But on a keyboard, you know, you can you can stack two things, layer it an octave lower at a slight delay. So it sounds like you're hitting, hitting the string a little later and you've got a really cool octave sound, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, keyboards are great. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been I've been playing keyboards for a long time. I'm, I'm not as good on keyboards as I am on guitar. Guitar is def definitely my primary instrument, okay. but I'm good enough on keyboard to fool people. So that's all that really matters. Well, I mean, on that note, I, I would I would just uh, reiterate, like um, technically speaking, I want to be clear: Michael Powers does not use a MIDI guitar. He uses uh -huh. a hollow electric guitar to eliminate most resonance that are right. in his notes, right? 
and then his boss is like doing an FFT transform on, on what he's playing to figure it's like out like an what SY note. 300 or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and he can even do things like bends. So like he gets the flute sound to sound like a bendy guitar. It's cool. Well, it's you really know, this cool. is where Roland went back in the right direction. I had the GR 300. The GR 300 was a fabulous guitar synthesizer because it was a guitar. Mm -hmm. um, and it did not track because it was processing the individual strings. But what was really cool about it was the waveform on the string was a sawtooth with a fixed width. So on lower notes, it was like a, sh uh, a, a sharp pulse. And on the upper notes, it was more like a sawtooth. So it was less harmonics huh. and, and less bright. So you actually had those timbral variations as you went from the lower frets to the higher frets. And it sounded very realistic. You could bend. It, it tracked perfectly. It was a wonderful thing. And when they came out with the GR700, I was talking with uh, Mr. Kakahashi at Roland, and we were at, we were at an AM show, and he's like, oh, yes, we're, we're doing this MIDI guitar. I'm like, no, don't. Don't do a MIDI guitar. That's the wrong direction. You yeah. Know? yeah. But they've got sort of gone back to that now, I think. But hex processing. See, to me, hex processing is the best of all possible worlds. Right. Because... You can process each string individually and get synth-like sounds, but then it's it's a guitar and there's no tracking issues, there's no delay issues, there's no there's no technical problems at all. Right. Do you know if the JTV does hex processing? I'm I pretty think, sure. I think it must because you can do custom tunings even. Yeah, no, that's that's that that's how it that's how it does its magic. Yeah. So yeah, you know? yeah. I figured it did, but yeah, I feel like Line Six could get a little bit better about exposing some more of that to 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 make it more friendly with like a software instrument or something like that. I like I let would me record like, it as MIDI notes, like if I could. Right. I would like, like to just be able. Well, I don't think it does MIDI. It don't does. I don't think MIDI it does, but like, could it? Like, I guess. That, but I'd that a, love to have a little box where you plug in the uh, the variax and you get just six outputs from the strings. I don't care how thanks. crappy That'd they sound because cool. awesome. I can always make them sound better. You know. Yeah, slip, slip my one guitar signal into my six strings. That'd be awesome. As I mean, I, I imagine the reason why output. they haven't done that is because they've probably optimized the pickup, not for high fidelity sound, but for the best possible conversion into a variax. You know. Oh, gotcha. So yeah. it's like it's it's like on that um, <clears throat> on the on that Gibson guitar. I mean, the the, the pickup's okay, but it's not mm -hmm. as good as a humbucker. You know, it's, right. it's it's designed really to just have the maximum isolation between strings, and that's a different puppy. You know, right? Different, different use case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to let my dog out, so I'm sorry for the pause. Well, I thought I had to let my dog out, but then he wasn't there, and I realized the dryer's been on ah, the entire time. Ah, RX-8 is going to come to the rescue again, Craig. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I really, really loved your your recent article, uh, Friday Tip of the Week, about uh, using Pro EQ to generate an impulse response, and, and then you make that be your amp in Empire. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to know, like. If is there like an online databases that shows like here's what the frequency response of cabinet X or Y was? That uh, you're aware actually, of? I wasn't using I, I wasn't no, I was just using EQ to make the cabinet sounds. Right, but like, how do you know what adjustments to make an EQ? Like, were you comparing to a physical amp that you were playing along to and being like, okay, now how do I make Pro EQ make a similar response? Or I no, guess you're not, you're not going to believe this. It's so it's so stupidly easy. 
I just oh took um, okay. I just took model lamps and ran them through white noise. I was that was going to be my next. Uh, or suggestion. ran white noise through model lamps is more like yeah it. a tone generator and then just look at the FFT output and make yeah, sure white, that... white noise is is ideal and and then you just you get a curve from that. And then you just match the curve with the EQ. Now you can't match the curve with the EQ, you know, with a with a you know seven bands of EQ or whatever. Um, but that's what makes it interesting, because like I could take something like, um, well, for example, in in the Helix, like I, I can take an amp that I'm not a huge fan of but has potential, mm -hmm. and trace its EQ and play with it around with the EQ and end up with something that's that's better, you know, that I like better. And it has more of that quote analog sound. It doesn't have those weird resonances. On the on the Gibson um, on the Gibson Firebird X, another ill-fated guitar. <laughs> I did a lot of the modeling on that with EQ. And I have I in fact I, I did a Friday tip of the week on a humbucker to single coil converter uh, with, using EQ. And it just again what I did was um, of course there I couldn't use white noise, but there I could generate a, a spectrum from the um, from the guitar. And so I, I grounded the middle coil of the humbucker to see what it sounded like as a single coil, checked the response of that, and um, just duplicated it with EQ. So a lot of these things like Blue Cat Audio's re-guitar and the guitar match thing and Bias FX and you know those those kind of are and, and PV they have they they have a really cool um, uh, active cloning technology they call mm -hmm. it. Um, that's all just really just using EQ to uh, emulate something else. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of tedious sometimes, but the, the best thing is that you can start off trying to emulate something and end up with something completely different. Yeah. Lately, I've been also working with, coming up with impulses, custom impulses, because I did a, um, I, I, you probably, I don't know, you may have seen that the Friday tip of the week where I talked about using white noise as an impulse for reverb. Mm -hmm. And um, that was like so successful to my ears. Um, I mean, it's my go-to reverb now for drums and voice and everything because I can shape wow. it into any reverb that I want. That's really I mean, saying something. I mean, most engineers have a billion reverb plugins, right? That they they constantly employ. They've got like this toolbox that I've heard. Um, but yeah, but it's not, see, here's the thing. It's it. like It's like the CGI version of reverb. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know how CGI graphics, like a ball, a CGI ball is like perfect and polished and smooth and totally reflective and cannot exist in the real world. Yeah. That's the way these reverb impulses are. You mm -hmm. can have a 20-second reverb with no flutter, no no nothing. I mean, it's just like, it's just this. So cool. So cool. You know, and the, and you can filter it. You can chop it. You can do all kinds of things to change the basic tonality of it. Put it through uh, FIR filters and mess with it, and, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, the reason why I like it isn't so much because it sounds realistic, but because it sounds like no reverb that could possibly exist. It's just so it's just so perfect. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's not necessarily awesome. something everybody wants. I mean, I also when I need when I need other reverbs. I mean, I do have other ones. The, I think the Abbey Road Chambers that Waves mm -hmm. has yep. is fabulous. I really do. Uh, and then there's there's a new one out by a, a company called Rare. I think it's called Rare Elements. They they have a plate reverb, and all it does is a plate, one European and one American. Huh. And it's got like four knobs on it, but it's a really 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 good plate response oh, okay. so there'll probably be a time when i want to have something that sounds like a plate instead of a cgi plate and i'll use it but again it's those um oh the other thing you know who who else makes a really good reverb i think that's underrated is the breverb from overloud that's an excellent 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 reverb and i 
don't know why I, you know, I don't see more people using it because it's a, it's a tremendous thing. And some of the IK ones as well, they're, they're classic reverbs, quote unquote. Um, they've yeah. been around a long time, but they, they sort of got it right. So, I mean, it re, you know, reverb's a very to taste personal thing and it's really yeah, easy it to get wrong. And I also think that it's really important to process it, you know, coming in and out. And I also do like mid-side reverb stuff where I'll put different reverbs on the mids and on the sides and sum them back together again. And then you get a, a richer sound. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll do it <laughs> by any means necessary to get the sound yeah. that I want, you know? Yeah. I definitely agree that reverb's probably right up there with distortion as in, in terms of everyone's got their own flavor that they are looking for. And um, yeah, they, they tend to, tend to look for that and, and strive for it. But. but the hell of it is, of course, is that nobody's listening to Taylor Swift's albums and going, oh what man, a great reverb the reverb on that banjo. That's why I bought the album. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, there's a joke I always make at seminars. I say, no radio station ever called me up and said, you know, we were going to play your CD, but, but that's a solid state preamp on the mic, isn't it? You know, I've I've heard that one before, and uh, I was gonna uh, comment on it after afterwards, but I'll say it now because uh, it came up. Um, I've actually ha I submitted a song for a mix critique once uh, on like a Studio One Sphere, uh, and uh, and the guy was like, um, "Well, I mean, this sounds like a direct uh, a DI boxed recorded acoustic guitar. Uh, that I mean, that's just not a good sound." I was like, but it's supposed to be like at an open mic. The whole the, the album itself was open mics for closed wallets. Uh, the concept of it, I was playing an open mic. He was like, yeah, I don't know, not a sound I'd ever go for. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that's well. A then funny he shouldn't anecdote. do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, exactly. I did it. You know, I did a song with a piezo output from a an electric guitar to simulate an acoustic thing, and it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like a J forty five. You know, but the part is the part does the job yeah you know i mean that's you know look every all people all people care about is the vocalist i mean if that's if there's one thing i learned doing studio work back mm. in new york it was all people care about is the vocalist everything that you do is to serve the vocal you know yeah everything else is for musicians <laughs> um do you have uh, so i've heard you talk before about gradual tempo changes in songs um specifically what I might refer to as like micro tempo changes as a way to like generate excitement. Mm -hmm. um, I've done, I haven't done that, but I, I have done songs where like I have a very gradual tempo change for, uh, that is supposed to be noticeable, right? So like the song deliberately starts slow and mm -hmm. then has this section where it builds up faster and faster and then I get up to the full rock mode or whatever. Um, and the way I had to do that was like kind of, to me, at least, it felt stupidly complicated in my DAW, right? I had to like go into my tempo map and every measure, you know, do a tempo change and say what the new BPM was there. And it felt so clunky as compared to how it would actually have gone if I was playing with a band and a drummer where we would gradually increase our tempo together all following the drummer as he, does, as he did so. Um, did you have to get around things like that when you did your experiments oh yeah i have a stupid simple way to do it <laughs> okay so here's the here's the deal <clears throat> or as joe biden would say here's the deal um <laughs> the i did a lot of research on tempo changes and i did this by you know sonar has the this ability where you can pull a file up to the tempo track and it draws out what the tempo variations are 
Yep. And it's a free program. You might as well download it because it does a few other cool things. But that's one of the coolest things that it does. So I looked at a bunch of songs, um, uh, some of the classic stuff, some of the James Brown stuff, some of, you know. Now, everybody thinks of James Brown as like the tightest rhythm section in the world, right? Clyde Stubblefield, the human metronome. But the thing is, he wasn't at all. Um, they varied the tempo, but in an extremely deliberate way. This idea that random tempo variations make things humanized is so totally off the wall. The only thing that random tempo variations do is simulate the number of beers that the drummer had. That's <laughs> all it does, because real musicians don't do it that way. In fact, mm -hmm. I, I, Shadows of the Night, the Pat Benatar song, um, the tempo actually tracked her voice pitch. And you could see that when she Whoa. was like singing louder and higher, it got faster. And then when she came down, it came down. Uh, Tears of a Clown. Oh, cool. I looked at I looked at a bunch of this stuff. Uh, Love Me Do. And the tempo variations are, in the case of James Brown, the tempo variations were extremely conscious and well thought out. You could see where they rose and where they fell just before the Papa's got a brand new oh, yeah. bag. And it would go I, down, then it would come back up again. Can I ask, did you analyze help? Like that one just jumps out to me is like, I bet there's a huge tempo change there between that initial part and the and the verses starting. No, I, I didn't. But I analyzed enough stuff to make me realize that there are certain things that musicians do. OK. Almost invariably, which is like speeding up just before the course and pulling it back. There's certain places, linear tempo changes sometimes. So. To do that in the song itself is insanely difficult, as you found out. Yeah. <laughs> so what I do is I take the final mix, the final two-track mix, which is cut to a click so that all the echoes are in time and all the tempo sync effects are in there, and I add the tempo changes after the fact in Studio One. Oh. So I use the tempo track, and like I'll just make these little... like. And, and I know where I want the tempos to change. If you listen to it, there, there's a song called My Butterfly on the album I called The Singles. It's on my YouTube channel. And if you listen to that, um, that's probably has the most noticeable tempo changes now that I've told you that they're there. Mm -hmm. But that album, all the songs on the singles uh, have tempo changes in them that are designed to like build it up to a certain point then pull it back and you know, that kind of thing. And by doing it to the two-track master... Uh, you can try different things, try different things over and over again, see what happens. Now, mm -hmm. it's not a perfect world in terms of not having any artifacts because, yeah. you know, you're doing some stretching. However, what I found was mm -hmm. if you moved where you changed the tempo just a tiny bit sometimes, it would be a totally smooth transition. I mean, yep. you didn't want it to land on the same place that a kick drum hits or something like that. But if you moved it just before or just after and missed some of those crucial things, mm -hmm. you could have a really cool change. Now, another thing that's really simple, I call them time traps. And that is where you decide you want a dramatic pause while something maybe sustains over it. And rather than create a tempo change in the conventional sense, you just drop the tempo off a cliff for a fraction of a beat. So that you've now extended it by like, you know, a second or two or whatever. Right. And it's like, it's really effective. And I do that a lot of times where just before the big part comes back in, I'll give it a 100 millisecond or 200 millisecond pause before the big part comes back in. So people are like, okay, now, ah, and then, uh, you know, and yeah. you've got that tension release thing really happening. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that sounds premeditated and it sounds like, well, this is kind of like science stuff instead of playing with feel. But the reality is that the people like Clyde Stubblefield who play with feel do it from a very conscious 
scientific way. Now, it may not be premeditated. It may just be that the way that they react to things, but it all makes sense. You go, of course he's going to speed up here and slow down here. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the perfect way to do it. Now, he's, he might even be thinking that. I, I, or I know he's dead now. I don't know if he was thinking that or not. But um, Hopefully he's not thinking it, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, I can listen to my stuff and go, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to build for this part here. Mm -hmm. But it's so much easier than trying to build tempo changes into a multi-track. I mean, that's hell. Mm. I don't know. So I, I both write my songs, though, in my D. Like, do you write your songs before you record them, or do you use your DAW as a writing tool? Um, boy, it, it, it varies. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, the way a lot of songs happen is I have an idea for something, either it's a lyrical hook right. or it's a chord progression, or I'm just, a lot of my songs come because I'm screwing around doing something else mm -hmm. and I go, Oh, I like that. And I hit record and I've got like eight measures and it's like, Oh, I like these eight measures. And sometimes I'll take those eight measures and I'll add bass and drums and keyboards and vocals and all that stuff just for that one part and then play that over and over again until the song tells me what it wants to do next and then the verse comes in or whatever mm -hmm. so on one level the song always the song usually doesn't start in the DAW but it gets transferred to the DAW really fast and then once it's in there um, I move things around a lot I use the arranger track a lot I use the harmonic editing feature a lot I love um, the arranger track. What a yeah. great advent that was when that have, came out. Have you played much with the harmonic editing? Yeah, yeah. The quarter track and the ability to have your guitar be like changing its chords to the yeah, yeah. Well, I love well it. try try putting it on white noise. Interesting. You can tune white noise and tune cymbals. I, I put drum parts on it all the time, and I tune the reverb coming off the drums. Oh, that's and cool. And when you tune the reverbs coming off the drums, I mean, one of the things that really fascinates me. Um, um, I really believe that the fewer things you have happening in a song, the more impact it gives to what's remaining. Right. So I don't want, you know, I really, I have a friend who was totally into punk rock. He said, man, as soon as you put on that guitar overdub, you're going in the wrong direction. You know, and, and I, you know, and a lot, I mean, listen to Miles Davis and that, that's all you need to know. Yeah. Um, so I find it much more interesting to have, instruments influencing each other like having the drums trigger something that's processing a parallel track on the bass while the reverb is being processed by the chord progression or whatever so i'm still only using like three instruments or you know but they sound big and huge and all totally in with each other you know right i've fact, actually we... i've cheated on making like entire bass lines kind of that way uh by by basically just having a constant note that was following my chord track um, on, on the, as a bass. And then um, I would duck it using a gate that was uh, listening to the kick guitar, uh, to mm -hmm. the kick drum, right? So it would only let that note go through and slowly release, kind of more like a natural bass sound. I wasn't going for like a bass guitar sound, but I was like, what happens if I do this? And it, it wasn't it wasn't dumb sounding, honestly. Like it was a, it was a cool little fun sound. Well, there's so many things you can do along those lines. I did a I was doing a demo at Sweet or not a demo. I was doing like a workshop at, at Gearfest for Sweetwater, mm -hmm. and I was showing harmonic editing. And I said, okay, like I think any song in the world benefits from having an acoustic guitar churning away in the background. You know, you kind of can't go wrong. Uh, simple, fellow guitarist, I love you know. That. So so I mean, yeah. Since you throw on that acoustic guitar, it just you know driving the. I said, but you know, so you have this EDM track. And you want to put a guitar part on, but you don't play guitar. What are you going to do? Well, can mm. you play one chord? Yeah, okay. So I 
had this track and I just played one chord over and over and over and over again. And it sounded absolutely horrible, of course. You know, I of mean, course. totally wrong. And then I had it follow the harmonic editing track. And now all of a sudden I had this polyphonic guitar thing following along with the chord progression of the right. song with a vaguely sort of like different sound. People just loved it, you know? Yeah. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of tricks you can do like that that are that I think increase I mean, it sounds kind of like like nerdy and gimmicky, but I think it increases the effectiveness of the song. If you listen to um I have I have four album projects up on YouTube right now. I do I do an album project a year. And if you listen to the change from the twenty sixteen mm-hmm. to the twenty twenty one, it's really obvious that I've just been paring it down and paring it down and paring it down, but having it sound bigger. Oh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The other thing I do a lot is I this was another Friday tip that I did was Oh wait, I'm sorry. Before you move on, I want to clarify one thing about the electric guitar thing you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you have to make sure to strum like in whatever pattern you wanted, right? Like that had to be right. The yeah. rhythm part. Yeah. Yeah, the rhythm part was fine. I just want to make sure that the listener understood that that uh, that bit is that like it didn't matter the fact that you were playing an E minor or whatever the entire right. time. It's the fact that your strumming pattern was good and in in line with the beat of the song. And now you can use harmonic editing to be like, no, play this chord instead in the E minor or what. Although I guess I could have quantized it if, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if I played it wrong. Yeah. But anyway, but yeah, it's uh, I, I forget where I was going with that. But anyway, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 that's okay. Train of thought. Oh, oh, I remember the uh, the other thing is that um, I'm a huge fan of playing Nashville guitar parts, mm-hmm. and what I've found is. Um, you can do a pretty convincing job just by like doubling your guitar and transposing it up an octave. Mm. And the DSP in, in live and in studio one isn't bad, but a waves has this plugin called the uh, sound shifter mm. and it does super, it does a superb job of changing pitch without artifacts and crap and stuff like that. The problem is that it, the latency is huge. It's like 150 milliseconds. Mm. So you really have to kind of like play through your programs real time, uh, DSP just to hear what it's going to sound like and then render it with the waves effect. But you can really get convincing Nashville style guitar parts. Also, Digital Performer has a really good offline transposition rendering algorithm. And you what mix do you that, think of it, Helix's uh, pitch shifting stuff? I've not, been pretty impressed with it. Actually, pardon me? Actually. Uh, helixes you know helix pedal yeah if it's I mean if it's in a track it's okay but if you're if you're if you're doing an acoustic guitar thing um, it it just doesn't cut. Oh, it. I guess I haven't even tried it on my acoustic. Yeah, no, I mean an acoustic guitar. It sounds like distorted and weird and yeah. and all that. I mean, I on the other hand, I I have used it when I wanted to know what something was going to sound like uh, mm. after I got it rendered. But again, if uh, in the latest album, which is like really heavily Caribbean influenced and all that, there's a lot of acoustic instruments. And then in 2017, I did a super acoustic thing and you just can't get away with things with acoustic instruments that you can get away with with distorted guitars you know that's true that's true oh uh wow i I see that we're actually at an hour so i want to be respectful of your time do you have maybe a few more minutes to to yeah sure thank you thank you i appreciate that um it's friday no client's going to call me between now and the end of the day and i've taken care of everything that needs taken care of so we're good. good that's good thank you um I've been really appreciative of uh, of this conversation. It's been a lot of fun for me, um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners too. So, um, I do want to make sure to to put you through the uh, torture of the lightning round. So let me pull that up. And 
um, I'll do my little spiel here. So the lightning round, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a series of questions. It's gonna be basically a limited uh, multiple choice uh, kind of thing. And I'll tell you what choices you have. I'm gonna ask you not to like hedge or anything while we go. But then afterwards, when we're done, you can be like, okay, I really wanna go back and clarify what I meant when I said this. Is that cool? Yeah, sure. Cool. And it's all based on the idea that those guys at the music store are certain those gold plated unbalanced monster cables with this triple super shielding are mm. worth the 600% markup. Uh, but I'm not convinced. So I wanted to ask you a few questions. Um, so on that note, do you, do you think it's worth the money to buy like a really fancy triple ultra shielded gold plated connector unbalanced quarter inch patch cable for a guitar? I thought it was going to be multiple choice. Uh, it's worth the money or a waste of money. That's your oh. choices. Generally not worth it. Cool. Uh, what In about... fact, can I amplify that for just one second? Oh, no. Oh. Afterwards, you can. That, we uh, okay, literally because... just established the rules. <laughs> but go for it. Man. New rules. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> amplify not, it. The best guitar chord that I have is a Mattel surplus cord i picked up for 50 cents at an airport surplus place because the shielding on it is so bad it has <laughs> virtually no cable capacitance no highs get lost going down that cable oh nice yeah and you're just in a clean environment so you don't have to worry about shielding yeah okay back to the lightning uh, round rules yeah lightning round fast uh is it worth the money to buy a fancy balanced quarter inch patch cable for like a speaker yeah yeah. Uh, is it worth the money to buy a fancy balanced XLR patch cable? Yes. All right. Is it worth the money to buy an external preamp? Uh, your choices here are worth it regardless, worth it based on your mic and or audio interface, or waste of money regardless? Can be worth it. Can be worth it unconditionally. Cool. Is it worth your money to buy a third-party plug-in hardware processor for uh, like a VST? Just in general, overall, worth it, not worth it. Hardware processor? You mean like like powered plugins or something, or what do you mean? Uh, e either no, e either a VST or an actual hardware uh, processor, like you know an old TBX limiter if you found one at a used uh, store or something like that. Or so do you just go stock plugins? Basically, would be your other choice. <laughs> I use stock plugins. Okay. I use hardware. You okay? You use hardware too? Okay. The answer is yes and yes. Well, yes you can't yes. get an adrenaline in software. That's true. Okay. Um, is it? Uh, do you do any streaming? Uh, I can skip that. Any question about streaming? If you do not do it, well, I, I like live videos. streams to like uh, to to Facebook or YouTube or whatever. Is what no, I mean no, I I do videos and and people can download them. Cool. Um, and um, boy, this one's gonna be hard for you to answer because I was gonna say, what's your preferred DAW software? But I know that. That's complicated for you. Um, what, like, if you had to pick a jack of all trades, DAW, what would it be? Is that a fair question? Well, it depends if I'm playing live or in the studio. Yeah, because is it still Ableton Live? Ableton uh, Live. I mean, look, Ableton Live is the only one I would use live because the only way you can get the audio engine to quit is if you take your laptop and drop it from 20 feet onto a concrete floor. And even then, I'm not sure that it would stop working. I think the screen wouldn't work anymore, but it might still keep going. It is, it's, I mean, it's beyond rock solid. Mm. But it, I don't like the mixing environment, and Studio One is a great mixing environment. And if you read the Friday tip that came out today, 
You'll find out how you can improvise in Ableton Live Session View, stream all the tracks in individually, record them in Studio Live, and mix them in Studio Live while using Live's instruments triggered from Studio One and processing Studio One's tracks with, uh, or processing Live's tracks with Studio One's processor. So it's cool. they're, they're a fantastic combination. Absolutely. But I'll tell you something. If there was only one DAW in the world, I would use it. I would still make the music that I'm making, and I'd be happy that it existed because I was raised on tape. Mm, okay. And anything's better than tape. I don't care. All these people who think the tape is cool, man, they never had to do a window splice. They never had to relap ahead. They never had to adjust the bias. That's all mm -hmm. I can say. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I hear tape machines were awful. It was before my time, but uh, I, I hear they were the worst. So They were. They were. Um. I'll skip that. It's a streaming question. Uh, do you have a, let's see, you already said stock plugins are what you go to. Do you use Isotope RX-8 to do any kind of uh, repair work? And have you found them to be cost effective for that work? It's brilliant. It's awesome. brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree. It's saved my butt so many times and it's going to save my butt on this episode as we've already <laughs> talked about. Um, uh, what about ozone? Do you use that for mastering at all? Isotope ozone? Um, uh, you can give this like a strong disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, strong agree would be your choices. Well, you see, here's here's the problem. It's one of the tools in the toolbox. Some songs I want to use ozone's limiter. Some songs I want to use the stealth limiter from IK, which is unbelievable. Yep. Sometimes the Waves L3 is what I really need to use. Yep. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. Ozone... Um, one thing I like about Ozone is using the mastering assistant to mm -hmm. get it into a spot before I actually go to master it because it applies the frequency-based EQ, and right. that can just take out a few things. I'm actually, what convinced me of its usefulness was when I was first testing it out, and I would master something, and then I would throw the raw file into the master assistant and compare, and they ended up being pretty much the same. There you so go. So they made the same value judgments about music that I made. And so, you know, it was, it was, so it's the penultimate step before mastering. So I use it all the time for the penultimate step before mastering, but for the final master, it's going to be the stealth limiter from IK. Okay. Very interesting. Um, do you use anything else besides the, the limiting of, of ozone, like the uh, stereo imaging or? I think the like imaging that. is cool. I think the saturation has its merits, but there I'm, there I'm using it more as a um, as an effect as opposed okay. to a mastering thing. Cool. Um, I try to incorporate as much stuff in there before the mastering. But the one thing that the Insight plugin is fantastic for doing videos. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've done a lot of. Um, God, there's this one song that has a, a, a drum thing in the middle. It's like sort of a zoo type of Sokai-ish kind of thing. And it has this drum, I, my first drum solo. And I the visual for it is insight, showing what the drums are doing. And it is just the coolest looking thing. That sounds cool. I will have to check that out. Now, Isotope makes a bunch of great stuff. I think they also have some things that are probably kind of underrated as well. I mean, they, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a big fan of the Nectar thing because I like to assemble my own plug-in chains. Mm. But I could see where somebody who just needs to get a good vocal sound quickly, you know, they, they've got it. Their Neoverb is really cool mm -hmm. um, because it, it does clever things with the EQ before and after in terms of not having the not having resonances in the signal and also right. by being able to choose, you know, the, the, the mix of the hole and the, and the room and the, the reflections. It's a very, very versatile reverb. Yeah. 
I, I agree. I, I really love Neutron as well, which I yeah, use Neutron. for their dynamic EQ, like to automatically duck the bass drum for the kick to be hearable when when you're doing pocket style. And like side that. chaining. Love it. I love it. Yeah. Side chain, huge. Oh, and, and full, full disclosure, I did do the manual for Neoverb, so. Oh, interesting. Cool. I will... <laughs> I will definitely keep an eye towards that as I read it, uh, as I try to figure out that plugin. I, I just got it the other day, so. Well, one thing, one thing that's I, I was really happy with with the manual, and so was Isotope, was I wanted to explain how what the different parameters did, and of course, trying to explain that with words is pretty tough. So again, yeah. I used Insight and I took snapshots of like, okay, here's what happens when you turn up the damping. You can see, oh, I see. There's no, there's no yeah. frequencies. I get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, do you use FabFilter plugins? Uh, at all uh, i personally love them but i want to know do you find them to be cost effective in terms of uh repair and or just general mixing use you know i hear nothing but good things about them but i've never tried them oh okay cool um i just you know i <laughs> i got all the wave stuff i got all the ni stuff i got all the ik stuff i got all the presonus stuff you know I've, I've i've got enough things to do what i need to do although like sure. i said Everybody raves about the fab filter stuff. If I was starting from ground zero and looking around and trying demo units to see what I liked, I'd probably have a bunch of them. So I okay. better not check them out. <laughs> they, they are spendy if you don't catch them on sale, that's for sure. Just like <laughs> everything else, actually. Um, speaking of waves, uh, are they a cost-effective way to like do mixing and or mastering um, or repair, for, uh, for that matter? Well, I, I use a lot of waves plugins. And... Um, one of the, you know, it's interesting because I I also write blog posts for them mm. because I come up with weird things to do with it. It's sort of like the Friday tip thing. I come up with yeah. weird things and like, oh, can you write that up? Like I just did a thing on um, using reference mixes. You know, like people like to use, you know, you've seen it a million times. Oh, yeah, you, when, if you're just getting into this, you should compare your what you're doing to a well-mastered song and see what the differences are. Well, to me, that's a very sketchy explanation. So I got into like, okay, it's not just levels, it's not just dynamics, it's also stereo width, it's also, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, all the characteristics are involved in comparing a recording, like how are the, how's the transient response of your thing compared to, to theirs, you know? And so I started, I went down a rabbit hole of analyzing stuff, and it was fascinating. I went into a lot of, I went into mid-side world and found out, for example, like Madonna's uh, Ray of Light is definitely an, an LCR kind of mix, you know, left, center, right, mm -hmm. because the guitar and the synths were slammed to the side. Whereas Peter Gabriel, he used the sides just to frame the middle, just to frame the vocal. That's where all the ambience lived, you know? Mm. So you can, you can learn a lot about what's happening in a mix by generating the mids, generating the sides, and listening to those in isolation. It's amazing what you can find out. You know... As a fellow lifelong music producer, sometimes I, I catch it myself having a hard time actually enjoying listening to not live music, like listening to a recording of any song, even on the radio or a CD, because I'm constantly like analyzing what they did to achieve that sound. Do you ever find yourself falling into that trap? Not so much. I kind of let it wash over me. You know, it's like... Um... I apply all the analytical stuff to my music. That's, you know, everybody mm. else, like, they have their thing, they do their thing, and that's fine. I mean, there's some times where it's like, oh, God, I wish I'd mastered that, you know. But <laughs> um, but where it really 
where it where I'm really no fun is movies because I do a lot of video work. A lot of people mm. don't know that, but I do a lot of video work, and I'm constantly looking. Okay, how did they do that? That is that CGI, and where did that come from? And okay, somebody's mixing the narr- Somebody's mixing the sound effects in with the stereo. I mean, like if you look at um, uh, Fury Road, was it mm-hmm. the uh, Mad Max? The Mad Max, Mad yeah, Mad- love yeah. that movie. The sound on that is unbelievable. Freaking amazing. The yeah. sound is just unbelievable. It's the same guy who did the Eight Days a Week movie for Hulu on the Beatles. Oh, really? And um, yeah, and it's it's just you know you listen to that and you go, gosh, there there, you know, there are like forty million individual cues per second in, <laughs> in this movie, you know. Yeah. And then I'm looking, okay, how do they generate that? And you know what what's green screen and what's real? I, like, The Mandalorian, um, I think that's a, extremely well done. Most people aren't aware that. The whole thing basically takes place in something about the size of my bedroom, you know. Um, oh, and wow. I don't have a very big bedroom. What what you're seeing in the background is a giant LED screen. Wow, I did and not so know it, that. When you look at it up close, you'll see. I mean, yeah, you'll see like okay, there's a column there, and there's a person there, and there's a thing there, and but anything where you don't see that immediate closeness to the characters is on that LED screen in the background, you know. Mm-hmm. And man, if I had 50 grand sitting around, I'd get one of those and I would make the bitchinest videos ever. (laughs) Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we are well past our originally scheduled time. So so thank you so much. Are are there any topics that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about um, that that you want to mention? Um, Not not really, but I, I would like to encourage people to go to my YouTube channel and listen to the to the music that I'm doing. Right, because um, there's a lot of there there are a lot of ideas in there worth stealing. <laughs> you know? ah. um, uh, I I get interesting comments about 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 the stuff. Um, I mean, I'm not saying people will like it or not like it or whatever, but every project is different. Every year, I do a new project and it has a different theme. Um, simplicity, right, was really yes, cool. Yeah, simplicity was my acoustic one, and then the one after that was Joie de Vivre. That was the EDM one. Then after that was the singles. That was when my, my wife was dying, so I didn't really get to, to, to do oh, a man. theme. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't the happiest album ever, although some people really like it. And then the one for this year is just unrelieved, or the one for, for 2020 was just super happy. I had some people write me, and they said that it's the only thing they listened to after it dropped for like three weeks because they smiled, and they were in the oh. middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, so it's it's – I. I again, whether people like the music or not, to me is immaterial. But I think that they will get ideas by listening to how the mixes are done and some of the processing techniques that are used and stuff like that. And one of the reasons it's out there is hopefully to inspire people to try some of these things themselves. So That's it's super it, cool. It's all at YouTube.com/slash the Craig Anderton because someone already had Craig Anderton, and I couldn't afford to hire a hitman. So you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's the Craig Anderton, but I, and they all have videos with them too, which is interesting because the point of the videos is it's amazing what you can do with public domain images and a copy of Vegas. Mm. Okay. You know, you you can do really pretty cool videos, and so people, you know, yes, take some extra effort, but when people see uh, one of the reactions I get when people go to quote listen to my music is they go, "Wow, I could." I could do those videos. I could do videos with my music. You know, it's like, yeah, you can. You really can. You know, actually, there was one thing I wanted to mention. Uh, I, I heard in a previous interview, someone asked you, if you had only one hat, what would you wear? Musician, producer, artist, and uh, et cetera. And you were like, father. And I, I, I just started clapping. Uh, so 
Uh, hats off to you, sir. Great freaking answer. Well, I mean, that's that's the ultimate DIY project, isn't it? Yeah, sure I mean, is. it really is. Teaches you a lot too. Yeah. Well, I, you know, th this probably isn't for the interview, but um, I really, I, I must have won a genetic roulette. I mean, she's just like, I never had those hassles. You know, I, I had, I had the kid late in life, and people were like, you know, I was like thrilled, right? And everybody's like, well, just wait, well, just wait till she's two, you know. And then she was two, and it was still fine. And like, well, just wait till she goes to school, and that was still fine. Well, wait till she learns to drive. Well, okay, wait till she, you know, it never was a problem. And I realized that the secret weapon was that she thinks logically. <laughs> you know, she yeah. just thinks logically. So it's like, wait, why would I want to get so drunk that I would pass out? That seems like a stupid idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? You really did hit the jackpot then. And now she's Not doing now she's doing the covers like... for my books. And she's oh, a, sweet. Yeah, she's sort of a high priced uh, graphic designer in L.A., but I get a discount. And um, uh, <laughs> writing is damn difficult. I mean, it just is. I mean, I, I and especially when you're a perfectionist and especially when you're writing a book, I'm using examples based on um, Pro Tools, Cubase, Studio One, Live and Digital Performer. Mm hmm. Um, because they're all cross-platform DAWs. I'm not doing Logic or Cakewalk or anything. Mm -hmm. And this means that when I wanted to show how to do something in these programs, I have to know how to do these things in those programs. Right. All right. Well, Thank cool. Well, thanks very much. I look forward to the next time we speak, Craig. Yeah, we will. I would love to talk to you again just for the show itself. And uh, I'm going to play the uh, outro music. But thank right. you again for joining me. All right. Take care.